Greetings and welcome to episode 54 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is something that I hope will be sort of a light-hearted diversion from all the heavy stuff, all the heavy topics that we've been covering in the course of the Japanese Empire. Uh, you know, war, exploitation, uh, racial discrimination, uh, you know, suppression of uprisings, uh, assimilation, these sort of things. Those are heavy, heavy topics. Um, today we're going to talk about baseball, sports. All right, something that usually traditionally often does not get included in uh, 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 discussions of history, but the history of baseball um, in the Japanese Empire turns out to be quite fascinating, and there's a whole lot that we can learn from the various case studies that are available to us. So let me begin with sort of uh, a question to whet your appetite for this episode, um, and that is namely, which Asian countries have Major League Baseball players in the United States, um, and why? <laughs> why is it those uh, specific countries? And when I say Major League Baseball players in the United States, the reason is because I want you to be thinking about which Asian, uh, which Asian countries have been able to have a long enough tradition of uh, training baseball players um, to the point where they can be good enough to compete at what is, I think, globally considered the highest level of uh, baseball competition in the entire world. And that would be a North American baseball team. Um, and so, you know, which countries are they? Well, let's give a little statistical overview of uh, players from Asian countries who have been able to play in Major League Baseball. Uh, Japan. All right. Now, that's not going to be a surprise. Most of you are probably familiar with Japanese players who have made it into Major League Baseball. Uh, 58 Japanese players have played in the Major Leagues total, and there are six current Japanese players in uh, uh, baseball. Uh, again, it's just shorthand American baseball because Japan has its own leagues. Uh, South Korea. South Korea. 21 South Korean players have made it to the big leagues, and there are five current South Koreans in the big leagues. Um, Taiwan. Taiwan has had 15 total players, uh, five who are current players. And then you also have the Philippines. Uh, Philippines, uh, I've seen different numbers on this, uh, it hasn't been tracked as precisely. Uh, something around 10 total, um, and several who are currently active players, but the breakdown with the Philippines uh, is a little bit messier because some of them are the kids of American white expats, you know, expatriate missionaries or something, who, who, who perhaps were born in the Philippines, um, and uh, some of them might be of mixed uh, uh, parentage and whatnot, but regardless, the Philippines has also had some players, um, a little bit less than South Korea and Taiwan, uh, but nevertheless, uh, they, they have made it, okay? Uh, it's not easy. Uh, you're not just going to have a random fluke. Someone grows up in some part of the world, and they happen to be really good at batting or pitching or fielding or something, and they can make it all the way to the major leagues. That only happens in the movies. In real life, there has to be, uh, you know, institutions. There has to be programs, training, re uh, 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 training regimes, uh, available coaches. Um, you know, uh, uh, competition, uh, high enough competition, and organized teams that uh, uh, develop the player to the point where, when they're old enough they might be able to make it to the big leagues, all right? Um, so you need some sort of a uh, historical legacy of baseball in your country. Now, why these specific countries? Why not China? <laughs> That's a big oversight. China, biggest country in Asia, most people. Uh, how come they don't have a tradition of baseball? Or India? Why are there no Indian players in Major League Baseball? Vietnam, Mongolia, Hong Kong, 
North Korea. Why South Korea and not North Korea? As it turns out, three of the four countries that I talked about earlier that managed to get players into the major leagues, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, three of four of those are founding members of the Japanese empire, Japan, Taiwan, and Korea. Now, the Philippines uh, did fall under Japanese control for several years, but that's not why baseball uh, 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 managed to uh, set down roots there, because Japan also took over Burma uh, um, for several years as well, Indonesia, and we don't have baseball players from there. Uh, The Philippines was an American colony, and it was the Americans who introduced baseball into the Philippines, and then they returned after a three- or four-year interlude during World War II, and then continued again to foster interest in the game in the Philippines. Okay. Um, what about other parts of the Japanese empire? All right. We've accounted for where they came from. All right. U.S. clearly has influence in the Philippines. Uh, Taiwan, South Korea, all right, that's clearly from Japan. And then Japan itself, that's the core of the empire. That's not very surprising either. Um, but Japan had other areas that weren't only conquered for three or four years during the empire. Um, what about uh, Japanese rule on mainland China? Right? Uh, Kwantung, uh, the northeastern part. They were there for a while, and Japanese actually did organize baseball um, in the Kwantung region, often as an extension of the South Manchurian Railway. Um, but it didn't really extend to the locals. Um, and it was, you know, this was sort of. Uh, uh, in the 1930s is when you got extensive Japanese control of the Northeast, and it was sort of a wartime economy, and you know special circumstances certainly applied to Kwantung. And, very important here, the successor to the Japanese Empire. It's important who succeeds the Japanese Empire when the Japanese leave in 1945. The successor was China. China takes over the Northeast. They take over Kwantung, not the United States. Okay, Um, and they aren't interested in baseball, as we will see. Uh, Chinese elites were crazy about basketball, not about baseball. Okay, so the U.S. won't be able to continue the initial Japanese seed in Kwantung. And plus, the Chinese were very eager to erase all traces of the Japanese and delegitimize anything that they had been associated with. So baseball legacy is not going to continue um, in northeastern China. Okay, Um, so all this is to sort of say is that the history of where certain sports go uh, has a lot to do with political history. It sort of is a mirror Uh, a mirror image, a case study of how the empire developed, sort of like we did with technology in the Japanese empire. Right? We're talking about where telegraphy uh, sort of uh, uh, is, is uh, uh, implemented and how the Japanese try to take over it and where they're, they're trying to implement their unique version of telecommunications technology. Um, that was sort of the technology aspect of the empire. Now this is the sports a- uh, aspect of the empire. We can see uh, uh, the contours, the evolution of the Japanese empire and where baseball takes root. Um, And remember, uh, it's not just the Japanese. This is a complex story. The Japanese are going to lay down the seed in particular areas, but it's very important to see who comes after them. Uh, Because if it's the United States, then that baseball seed will continue to be watered and it will flower. It will grow. Uh, If it is a a country that takes over that is not interested in baseball or doesn't have a long history of interest in baseball, that that, 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 tiny little plant will wither and die (laughs) and it will not be continued. If the Soviet Union takes over, if mainland China takes over, 
Uh, and I know you're already thinking, well, how do we explain Taiwan then? Because uh, mainland China takes over Taiwan and then mainlanders flee to Taiwan after the Civil War. Yeah, it's uh, complicated and we will get to that as well. That is a special case study. All right. Um, why am I doing this lecture? I always like sort of, you know, uh, uh, blur history and uh, uh, the personal right now because um, it's very important to understand why we get inspired to, cert to study certain things. Um, and, you know, my whole, my whole background of how I got into Chinese history was I got the video game for the Super Nintendo Romance of the Three Kingdoms when I was 14 years old. My parents gave it to me for my birthday and I thought it was so fun conquering this, the, the, this country called China over and over and over again in the third century AD and finally say, hey, how do I continue? this experience, uh, got the historical novel in English that it was that it was based upon, read that, started to devour Asian culture in general, watch foreign movies when I would rent them from the video store, and then that all sort of eventually translated into, hey, I think I'm going to take Chinese language when I get to college, and then it was a matter of how do I turn this into a salary, how do I turn this into a job, um, but anyways, I mean, you know, the, what, we, what inspires us to study certain things is, uh, is, 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 is quite relevant, um, and I'm coming to this, uh, I'm giving this, uh, uh, I'm recording this episode in um, March of 2000, uh, 2020. And uh, if you know anything about where I'm from, I live in the D.C. area. And last year, the uh, reigning World Series champions are the Washington Nationals. Uh, first time that they've won it. Um, and uh, I moved to D.C. in 2011. So I've been here nine years. Uh, and originally, all of my sports loyalties were for Seattle. That's where I grew up. Um, and the Seattle Mariners, the baseball team there, have been terrible for the past 20 years, so I lost interest in baseball. All right, hometown loyalties are very important. I lost interest in baseball, um, and uh, I didn't identify with the local Washington team whatsoever. In fact, I came to think that baseball was quite boring um, until <laughs> the Nationals made the playoffs last year and started winning in dramatic fashion and won everything. It was so fun, and it rekindled my interest in baseball. It totally rekindled my interest in baseball, um, and now I'm once more really into it, and I find uh, baseball to be a really fun, relaxing uh, 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 sport to follow. Uh, if you study the history of baseball outside of the Japanese Empire, like in the United States, one thing that's, op that's often observed about it um, is that it's the one sport in the United States that dates back to uh, the pre-industrial era, uh, sort of, you know, when America was still overwhelmingly agrarian, overwhelmingly rural, and baseball was a sport. It's the only one that doesn't have a clock uh, timer. Um, you know, it's sort of, we have certain conditions that have to be met for the inning to be over, for the game to be over. And however long or however short amount of time it takes to meet those conditions to get 27 outs, that's how long the game will be. It can be, you know, two hours if you're quick. It can be six hours if it goes to 20 innings. But uh, baseball runs on pre-industrial time. And it's the only sport that does that. And some people think that's a problem uh, in our day to, in our day and age today. That uh, hey, you know, uh, this, this isn't really made for the high paced, fast moving uh, era of uh, 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 social media and, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff. But anyways, um, so it was after the World Series that I started thinking, hey, I want to continue this experience just like I did with Romance of the Three Kingdoms, that Super Nintendo game when I was 14. How do I continue this experience? I'm going to go find a bunch of books on the history of baseball, history of baseball in the United States. Um, and then eventually I thought, well, how do I translate this to Asia? Um, and uh, so I found several books that were on uh, the history of baseball in uh, the Japanese empire, uh, where the, the one place where uh, it developed uh, 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 to very great lengths in Asia. All right. Uh, if you're interested, some books that you can read. There are several, actually. Um, one of them is Andrew Morris. It's called Colonial Project, National Game, A History of Baseball in Taiwan. 
Another one uh, is, is by a, guy, a man named John Harney, Empire of Infields, Baseball in Taiwan and Cultural Identity. Um, now, as you can see, most of the research is on Taiwan. All right, uh, because in so many other things, this is where Japan had the longest to develop a local interest in uh, 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 you know, their own leisure activities without intense resistance. Okay, um, and so oftentimes Taiwan by default just becomes the best case study. It's the place where you can get the best records, the best archival records, um, and you've got a long period of time, you know, 50 years in which you can see how something evolves over time. All right. Now, I'm curious myself about how baseball takes root in Korea. It originally takes root in the entire uh, Korean peninsula. Obviously, what happens to, to between North and South Korea is going to be a result of the Cold War. That's why it doesn't continue in North Korea, but does continue in South Korea. Um, but as so many times, I have to admit, I'm still waiting for someone to write a dissertation on the evolution of Japanese baseball in Korea. Clearly, it took root, uh, but I, we don't know the contours of uh, actually how Japanese baseball uh, developed in Korea, uh, I'm still waiting for someone to write a book on it. And when they do, maybe I'll add another episode one day, uh, baseball in Korea. But for now, a lot of what we talk about, the uh, case study is going to be specifically Japanese baseball, uh, first in Japan, and then its spread and development in Taiwan. And then hopefully you'll be able to sort of extrapolate from there what the likely experience was of Japanese baseball elsewhere, whether you're talking about Korea, whether you're talking about Kwantung, whether you're talking about Micronesia. Uh, presumably the Japanese were playing baseball a lot in all of these places, but to what extent it took root, was adapted, included, excluded the locals, uh, we don't have a whole lot of information. Taiwan's really the only place we know a lot about that. Now, uh, from a big bird's eye perspective, let's talk a little bit about sports, the uh, uh, political side of sports in general, specifically uh, sports in empires. When uh, a certain people comes from one part of the world, they colonize you know, vast swaths of other people's territory, and then they bring in their culture. Um, and oftentimes we'll talk, you know, when we think about culture, we think about, oh, British tea time. You know, you go to India today um, and uh, afternoon tea is a thing. It's a very common thing to have in India, to have afternoon tea. Clearly that came from the British uh, oftentimes talk about language. Oh, they speak English in India. Um, you know, the legacy of very, uh, you know French uh, in, in various parts of their former empire is widely spoken. Uh, these are aspects of culture. We often are very commonly, we acknowledge these things as the legacy of uh, former imperial rule. One thing we often don't think about is sports. Sports. Um, you know, where are British sports chiefly played today? Well, obviously among the British, but you all, also among their former colonies. All right, uh, so uniquely British sports like cricket, from which I believe baseball is ultimately derived uh, and has evolved. Uh, British cricket, something I'm not really all that familiar with. I've always sort of seen cricket. Every once in a while you see it on TV or whatnot, and I'm like, well, that's an, that's an odd sport, sort of a, a weird rip-off version of baseball, not really realizing that cricket uh, came before baseball. Um, and I'll you know, sort of look at it like that, and I'm like, huh. And one, one year I went to India, I went to New Delhi for a conference, and uh, the moment I got off, all the TV screens everywhere were showing cricket matches. Um, and I got into a taxi, and the driver's talking about the latest cricket match and asking me if I'm into cricket. Um, and it very quickly dawned on me that cricket was huge in India. Huge. There was some huge tournament going on, international tournament. Um, and, the, and many people in India uh, couldn't wait to see uh, the Indian team uh, uh, beat the British cr uh, cricket team, sort of like this international rivalry and whatnot. Um, French soccer. 
spread to many of its former colonies, especially ones in uh, North Africa like Algeria. Um, and then, of course, the United States, uh, baseball and basketball, depending on what parts of the region that they have uh, cultural and economic and political influence in. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, spread of baseball in Asia. We know that uh, sports in general is an aspect of culture an aspect of culture uh, that empires bring into other parts of the world. And oftentimes these sports then, this one particular aspect of culture will be uh, adapted and indigenized by the local people. And if the conditions are right, it will continue to develop and oftentimes even get to a point where they can challenge um, the original imperial donor state, if you want to think of it in that way, uh, be as good or even better than them. Now, uh, when does baseball come to Japan? Uh, it spreads directly from the United States to Japan in the 1870s. Uh, we actually know that there are two sort of simultaneous intermediaries in the 1870s. Uh, remember, 1870s, this is, just, this is within one decade of the Meiji uh, Restoration. Okay, the end of the Tokugawa era, uh, you're, you're plunging headlong into westernization, um, and within the first decade, you're getting baseball introduced into Japan. In 1873, a man by the name of Horace Wilson, an American educator hired by the Meiji government to teach at what will be the institutional forerunner of the Tokyo Imperial University, a very prestigious university, uh, decides that his students in Japan need more physical education, and so he introduces baseball exercises. Four years later, in 1877, a young Japanese engineer who was studying railway technology in the United States, uh, uh, Hiraoka Hiyoshi, he returns to Japan with baseball equipment and books that he had acquired when he was in the United States. All right, both of these men, Horace Wilson and Hiraoka uh, Hiroshi, are embodiments of Japan's headlong plunge into westernization. All right, baseball is sort of the uh, unintentional, informal, collateral cultural exchange that uh, ensues from this process. All right. Um, now, over the next several decades, the 1880s, the 1890s, you know, up, up until the end of the 19th century, you start to see the development of mostly amateur Japanese baseball teams as outgrowths of professional organizations or of middle and high school. Okay. Uh, these are how you're going to get Japanese baseball teams in Japan in the 1880s and the 1890s. For example, in 1896, the first higher school of Tokyo, all right, is able to field teams that ultimately uh, whooped the asses of American amateur teams that were based in Yokohama, all right, the treaty port of Yokohama, uh, the Yokohama Country Athletic Club. It's going to be a club filled with diplomats, the sons of diplomats, uh, uh, wealthy American expat uh, merchants and their sons. Um, you know, from this treaty port, you're going to have American expatriates um, informally creating their own amateur baseball clubs. And in 1896, uh, we actually have uh, a record of a uh, rivalry, several games in a row that were played between the first higher school of Tokyo and the Yokohama Country Athletic Club made up of foreigners uh, in, in which the Japanese team won the games 29 to 4, 35 to 9, and 22 to 6. Boy, those look more like football scores than they do baseball scores. In 1903, however, Japanese universities started organizing their own baseball teams. All right, so by the time you get into the first decade of the 20th century, it's not just sort of uh, uh, amateur uh, teams that are formed by 
you know, government departments um, or, you know, a, a, a company of lawyers or bankers or something like that, uh, or high schools, um, you finally start getting universities, Japanese universities organizing their own baseball teams. And the most famous, the most famous Japanese university baseball team will be that of Waseda University, which was formed in 1903. And then in 1905, just two years after Waseda University founds its first baseball team, uh, they undertake a tour to the United States to play American teams in highly publicized uh, matches. Now, this is a big deal. Okay, this is a big deal uh, to be able to take a baseball team that was formed in Japan and then travel to the United States, the home of baseball, um, and to basically be on the same field. Uh, to be allowed to be on the same field is going to be sort of de facto recognition that you are sort of a, a member of this exclusive club. Remember, the Japanese are trying to measure up to the Americans. This is the same time as they're defeating the Chinese in the Sino-Japanese War, and they're defeating the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. Uh, at the exact same time, they're sending Waseda University baseball teams to America to play uh, American college baseball teams. Uh, it's affirmation that once more, Japan has made it. All right, Japan has made it. Um, so who, who, who did uh, Waseda University play when they toured the United States? Well, they played uh, the uh, uh, college-level teams of Stanford, the University of Washington, the University of California schools, and then they went as far east uh, as Chicago. Um, and when wa the Waseda University played uh, the, the baseball teams of Chicago, uh, U the University of Chicago, we actually have an account of the local Chicago press, uh, the newspapers, um, how they covered the game. And it's interesting to see that they sort of invoked these popular racial stereotypes uh, to sort of uh, uh, portray the Japanese teams in a somewhat, uh, they, they, they probably thought it was in a comical light. They almost certainly thought, oh, this is funny. Uh, no, no offense intended, but in hindsight, we look back at it and we see, yeah, this is pejorative racial discourse that is so casually put up. And whenever someone takes offense at it, you just say, oh, I was joking. I was joking. Um, and that seems to be what, go, what go, goes on here in the coverage of Waseda in the 1905 uh, tour in which they were saying things, you know, like, oh, it's clear that the uh, Japanese team, they're not able to beat the Americans because they have smaller legs, right? That, 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 that yellow race type uh, means that they have certain handicaps that they aren't able to overcome. American players are bigger, so they hit more home runs, you know, this sort of thing. Um, ultimately, Waseda uh, won nine games and lost 17 on the 1905 tour, but that actually would be seen as a fairly respectable record, considering that you've gone to the home of baseball, uh, the best baseball players in the world, in the United States, um, and baseball has only been around in Japan, you know, in a semi-professional way for just about a decade or so by this point. Um, for Americans, uh, from their perspective, the Japanese love of baseball sort of was confirmation to them of U.S. cultural superiority. <laughs> they came to us, uh, and now they are uh, trying to emulate us, uh, not only in technology and politics, but also now in sports. It's very flattering uh, to realize that they look up to us in uh, in, in, in this way. For the Japanese, being on the same field as American teams was confirmation into the membership in that Western club, right? We're like them. We can compete on the same sports level as well. And this was something that was so uh, 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 played up in the domestic fear in Japan that we even have records of Japanese textbooks as early as 1910 teaching Japanese kids how to invite foreigners, quote, to a kind invitation to a baseball match in English. 
Okay, this was this was a measure of civilization. How well you have uh, imitated and aped the Westerners. And in this particular degree, they are emulating the Americans and their love of baseball. Um, and it is seen as a sign of progress that we've measured up to them, not only in technology, not only in warfare, not only in politics, not only in our economy, but also in sports, also in baseball. And for the next 25 years, until 1936, when you know hostilities between the two countries finally become too much, uh, but throughout the 1910s, the 1920s, and the first half of the 1930s, uh, Japanese and American teams would continually embark on baseball tours of one another's country. And in fact, this culminated in 1934, sort of the last major uh, uh, one of these tours, uh, baseball exchange tours, was in 1934 when uh, uh, no less a personage than Babe Ruth visited Japan. You know, and it creates a media frenzy. Wow, Babe Ruth, the best baseball player in the, the home of baseball. Uh, he has actually come all the way to Japan to play games here. Um, and it was a really big deal. Uh, but this was common. All right, so some sort of cultural diplomacy uh, through touring baseball teams back and forth between Japan and America were quite common um, in the first half of the 20th century until World War II breaks out. All right, now let's turn to how Japan, uh, having risen to what they see as close to the level of the Americans, maybe not on par exactly, um, but they see themselves as definitely a younger brother in, in, in terms of baseball. Certainly, they're the most advanced baseball team in uh, all of Asia, right? Um, how do they then spread baseball to their own colonies. And as I said before, our case study is going to be Taiwan because we have the most information here and it goes back the earliest. All right. So Taiwan, we know, acquired in 1895 as a result of, this, uh, of, of the first Sino-Japanese War. Now, for the first really 25 years, all right, from 1895 to 1919, those are our dates, uh, baseball in Taiwan will be a insular and socially isolated affair uh, pretty much solely among Japanese settlers, Japanese expatriates. The Taiwanese were not involved. All right. Uh, you will get Japanese professionals forming their own informal and sometimes formal teams and leagues. What this means is enthusiastic private individuals creating their own teams often as an, extens uh, as an extension of their office, their factory, uh, their railway company, the Japanese post office, their bank, uh, some sort of government department, uh, a school, something like that. All right, you say, hey, we've got a bunch of able-bodied men. We all come to work here every day in the railway engineering department. Uh, how about we all form a baseball team after work and we can play on the side. Maybe during lunch, we'll go out and throw a ball around, take some hits, and then uh, if things get really good and we really enjoy this, we'll, we'll We'll start playing games on the weekend. And if we find out that that's a lot of fun and it's successful and we see that other uh, organizations uh, from the Japanese colonial settlers are also doing this on the weekends, well, let's you know, create an informal league and we can play each other every once in a while. Uh, that's how this sort of works. And in 1906, 11 years after acquiring Taiwan, you get your first organized baseball game in Taiwan, in which the Taiwan Colonial Government High School and the National Language Normal School played to a 5-5 tie. Okay? Uh, don't be fooled by those names. Taiwan Colonial Government High School and National Language Normal School. What is the National Language Normal School? It's a school where you put emphasis on the national language. What is the national language? Japanese, not Chinese, not Taiwanese. 
Okay? Colonial government high school. That is a high school that Japanese go to, not Taiwanese. These institutions were outgrowths of the Japanese expatriate settler community and entirely composed of them. Okay? One other typical example. In 1914, we have uh, records of a game hosted by the Taichung City branch of the Taiwan Bank, and it pitted the company's married men against their unmarried men. That's how we're going to sort of have fun with baseball. Uh, let's have all the married men on one team, the unmarried men in the Taiwan Bank on the other team. These guys are all Japanese. Okay? You get your first formal Japanese-run baseball leagues in Taiwan in 1915, 20 years after you've acquired uh, uh, Taiwan uh, from China, well, from the Qing Empire. Uh, they would create northern and southern leagues, and then from these leagues, they would create an all-star team. And we know that in 1915, there was an all-star tournament that pitted the All-Stars of the Northern League against the All-Stars of the Southern League, and it was intended to, to sort of mark and celebrate 20 years of Japanese rule in Taiwan. So there you go. The first 20 years of Japanese rule in Taiwan were celebrated with an all-Japanese-led All-Star baseball game. Okay, uh, Who did these teams look to as a model? Remember, where is Taiwan oriented towards? They're oriented back to the Japanese islands, which means by this point you're looking to Waseda University as the model of what Japanese colonial baseball in Taiwan could aspire to. And not surprisingly, Waseda University would start touring Taiwan in 1917. And we know when they came in 1917 for the first time, they played games against the local uh, the, the local all-star team. Again, 100% Japanese on all sides. What are the debates over engaging the Taiwanese in Japanese baseball? Okay, There are parallels with debates over the integration into Japanese education and assimilation uh, uh, issues in Taiwan as well. As we saw before, Japanese home island intellectuals back in Tokyo oftentimes called for rapid assimilation. Hey, we're all the same race. Uh, we are you know, multi-directional mi uh, migrating ancestors. Uh, we are a Mongol race. That's a good thing. The Taiwanese are a part of this. Uh, if they've drifted too far from the uh, original Yamato race, we need to bring them back. Uh, and Taiwan should be assimilated as quickly as possible. Um, but officials on Taiwan, colonial officials actually sent to govern Taiwan, they're more cautious, they're more pragmatic, and they say, sure, that's a long-term goal, but let's start off with coexistence, coexistence. Um, and we'll gradually start to draw up some plans to integrate and assimilate uh, the people of Taiwan, but for now, go slowly. Okay, so in baseball, Taiwanese were not encouraged to engage or even watch Japanese baseball games. All right, this is co th th this is coexistence. However, you can't really stop the Taiwanese from a a a attending Japanese baseball games, even if they're not playing in them. Okay, even if they're not playing in them, many Taiwanese would start just out of curiosity, something to do during leisure time. If you are a Taiwanese who's starting to make some money, you are starting to gravitate towards the Japanese communities, maybe work in the Japanese colonial government. It's natural that you're also going to start evincing an interest in the sort of leisure time activities that your Japanese colleagues or your Japanese bosses are also engaging in. And you're going to go to a Japanese baseball game. 
Now, these are not always comfortable sites uh, to watch games for some Taiwanese. Many of the earliest baseball games in Taiwan, there were no formal stadiums. They were played in Japanese military parade grounds or public parks that were created by the Japanese. And so they're filled with Japanese expatriates, Japanese settlers, Japanese soldiers, Japanese officials. Uh, so you need to be comfortable fraternizing with these sort of people. Um, and those Taiwanese who are going to be most comfortable interacting with those kind of people and going to these sort of places to watch a baseball game are going to be those who are already leaning and acculturated towards the Japanese colonial presence. Okay. Nevertheless, growing numbers of Taiwanese started coming to watch Japanese baseball games. Um, and we know that it's as early as 1908, just a couple years after the first organized Japanese baseball game, as early as 1908, one tournament uh, between 100% Japanese baseball teams was canceled out of fears that it would inflame the passions of the local Taiwanese, lead to violence, whether among Japanese audience or that might then inflame Taiwanese audience or among mixed Japanese-Taiwanese audience, and degrade the morals of the natives. Okay, so very quickly we can see that somehow uh, the locals are becoming somewhat interested in what the Japanese are doing during their leisure time. And baseball is, is, is percolating uh, out into the general population. However, it is hard to know just how much the locals engage Japanese baseball. Uh, it only appeared infrequently in the Chinese language press that most of the educated uh, uh, Taiwanese elites are still reading. And few Taiwanese actually did have the money to afford the sort of, sort of specialized equipment and uniforms that you would need uh, to play in baseball. Yeah, you can do it in sort of an amateur way. You can draw bases on a dirt, you know, a playing field or whatnot, uh, but the more uh, you know, the more you develop the sport and the more you do it, you're going to start wanting to, you know professionally made bats. You're going to need actual you know uh, 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 standard baseballs. You're going to need uniforms. Uh, those things are expensive. Those things are expensive. Uh, you might have to rent the field that you're playing on. Uh, these things all cost money. And plus, if you are a wealthy Taiwanese and you actually do have the money to afford this sort of specialized equipment, you still encounter an ideological obstacle. Because if you are a wealthy Taiwanese in the first couple decades of Japanese rule, you probably prioritize Confucian education. And Confucian education does not prioritize physical education. The importance of physical education, PE, comes from the Western countries. That came from America. All right. The Confucian uh, uh, way of looking at that was that labor of the mind is more valuable than labor of the hands. Um, and a Confucian gentleman uh, is supposed to grow his fingernails long um, and not work out in the sun all day. So there is a strong aversion uh, to this sort of physical labor. It's not seen as a good thing. Now it is seen as a good thing. Go out and get your exercise. Go out and play, kids. Uh, no, that would have been a very new concept. The Japanese have internalized that concept. Um, how are you going to get the Taiwanese to internalize that concept? Well, it's not going to be deliberate because official Japanese policy is, you know, uh, let's not overtly encourage the Taiwanese to attend Japanese games, uh, baseball games and play Japanese baseball. So it's going to be inadvertent. It's going to be unintentional. Um, but you have to change the ideology. How's ideology going to change? Education. When you make the decision to start enrolling the Taiwanese into Japanese schools or putting them into schools where they're going to be exposed to Japanese education, uh, which is essentially a form of integration or assimilation, then they're going to start internalizing the uh, Western, the Japanese mediated uh, valorization of physical labor uh, for an educated man. And they got that from the West. 
Right? That's the sort of chain of events that you need to have in place before the Taiwanese are going to say, hey, baseball is a positive thing that we should engage. We should play it ourselves. And the turning point for all this is 1919. In 1919, you get a massive uprising in Korea, uh, in which you have several thousand casualties uh, in the ensuing suppression, very bloody. And this leads to a rethinking among many top Japanese officials uh, of their colonial approach in Taiwan and Korea. Uh, in Taiwan, uh, this leads to the appointment of the first civilian governor, not just a military governor, Den Kenjiro, in the year 1919. And he advocates for the implementation of those assimilationist ideals. So they've been on paper for a while, but we've been having this coexistence policy, keeping the Taiwanese at length, at arm's length. That needs to change now, uh, or we're going to have future uh, uprisings uh, like we had in Korea in 1919. Uh, we need to start uh, giving them the fruits of, of, of what it means to be true Japanese. Um, you know, why deny them? The, the wonderful privilege of being Japanese anymore. Uh, they want to be Japanese. Why are we keeping them at arm's length? We do that and they feel discriminated against. They feel excluded and that leads to uprisings. That's the thinking uh, among many colonial officials after the uprising in Korea in 1919. Uh, so Den Kenjiro, he then abolishes the restrictions that had previously been in place on intermarriage in Taiwan. Now Taiwanese and Japanese can get married if they're so inclined. Um, he also opened up high-level high government jobs to Taiwanese so long as their Japanese language uh, had been developed and it was good enough to actually serve in the Japanese government and opened up Japanese education. Uh, that's the most important development. All right, Japanese education as a means to cultural assimilation. It's going to be much more widely promoted now. All right. At first, Japanese schools were shunned, both by the Taiwanese parents, those wealthy Chinese parents. If you had money and the resources to send your kid to school, uh, you're not going to send them to a Japanese school in the first you know, years of Japanese rule. You're going to send them to a private Confucian academy. All right. Poor kids worked to support the family and didn't go to school. And the Japanese, even though they have schools, they're not too interested in bringing in the Taiwanese students either. So it's mutual. We have our own sort of separate levels of, uh, of uh, educational tracks. After 1919, however, you see the appeal of Japanese schools rise on both sides. The Taiwanese parents who actually uh, uh, believe that, you know, hey, I need to make sure my kids go to school um, and not necessarily work to support the family at all economic levels are going to be more interested in sending their kids to Japanese schools. And now the Japanese official policy is to encourage the Taiwanese to attend Japanese schools as well. This is when you're going to start getting Taiwanese who are being educated like Japanese kids are being educated, which means an emphasis on the virtues of outdoor physical education, PE. Okay, um, we know that uh, uh, some Taiwanese parents, even before 1919, had already been agitating for J uh, Japan to set up uh, Japanese-style middle schools in various cities in Taiwan as a means of giving their kids more opportunities. Some of these parents are realizing, they're realizing um, that our kids are disadvantaged if they don't get a Japanese education. Even before 1919, some parents are starting to realize this old Confucian education stuff, um, you know, we're not going back to China. It's been 15, 20 years by now. Uh, we need to see the writing on the wall and start learning Japanese or my kids won't have economic opportunities. And in 1915, we have a record of some parents in the city of Taichung even demanding the Japanese set up a, 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 uh, the first Japanese middle school and allowing Taiwanese to attend the school side by side with Japanese students. And many Japanese expatriate settlers oppose this idea. They look down on the Taiwanese and say, I don't want my kids going to school with the inferior Taiwanese students. It'll lower the quality of the entire class. Regardless, once Taiwanese kids start going to Japanese schools, 
largely after 1919, with incentives on both sides for these kids to be getting a Japanese-style education, they start to receive that Western-style emphasis on music and physical education that the Japanese have already internalized themselves. So, despite no formal encouragement for Taiwanese to participate in organized Japanese baseball, even now, PE education after 1919 will foster this interest as an outgrowth of a new integrationist assimilationist uh, uh, policy towards Taiwan. Not the really intense assimilation that you get in the late 1930s, the Komingkan movement, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago, uh, sort of more a, a, a low-level general guiding vision of uh, general access to Japanese-style education, not changing surnames and you know, serving in the military and all this sort of stuff. Um, so this uh, 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 beginning engagement of Taiwanese with Japanese-style education would be further stimulated by high-profile baseball tours uh, to Taiwan that came not only from Japan, but also the United States. In 1970, remember we talked, uh, 1970, 1917, remember we talked about Waseda University baseball team touring Taiwan, and then it would often come back to Taiwan in years after that, and, you know, keep alive this uh, 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 public interest um, in the newspaper, um, you know, events that you could go to and watch Waseda University baseball team play with local Taiwanese teams, all right? You actually had a United States team composed of some major leaguers and some Pacific Coast leaguers that toured Taiwan in 1921. Yeah, they went to Japan, too. Uh, but when you go to Japan in these days, you also go into the Japanese Imperial Circuit. And they toured Taiwan in 1920, uh, 1921. And uh, unfortunately for the local Japanese baseball teams, we know that they won all seven games against the local Japanese baseball teams quite easily. All right. Now, we've established the roots of baseball in Japan. We've established how it spreads to Taiwan in insular, quarantined Japanese little bubbles. Now, we're going to see how it finally takes root among the Taiwanese. All right. The first Taiwanese team to emerge from the post-1919 era is a team known as NOKO, N-O-K-O. Uh, from 1921 to 1925, the NOCO team will be active, uh, forming its team and uh, gaining a profile on the uh, 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 national sort of Taiwan and international stage in Japan. All right. Something's interesting about the NOCO team is that it is composed entirely of Aborigines, Taiwanese Aborigines. This is not the Chinese population that immigrate that uh, immigrated to Taiwan from Fujian in southeastern mainland China. Uh, these are the Aborigines who are more, you know, culturally, ethnically more closely related to the Polynesians, uh, who eventually colonized much of Micronesia, Melanesia, and Polynesia, uh, all the way to Easter Island. We actually have traced that the, the language spoken as far away as Hawaii and Easter Island in New Zealand uh, is actually a descendant of a language that can be traced all the way back to the Aborigines, um, who, who by this point are largely living in the uplands and in the mountains of Taiwan, largely in the center and the eastern part of the island. The western lowlands is where you have intensive rice agriculture dominated by the Chinese migrants from Fujian province. All right, uh, how does this team form? Uh, they're based around Hualien, uh, a town on the eastern coast of Taiwan. Uh, it was formed in 1921 when a Chinese employee of the Rising Sun Construction Company, oh, you love that name, you know, you, 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 you can see the Japanese influence right there, right? A Chinese employee of the Japanese company, the Rising Sun Construction Company, uh, this uh, uh, Chinese employee, his name is Ling Guixing, he sees a bunch of Aboriginal teenagers playing baseball games 
uh, with, rudimer- with ru- rudimentary equipment out on an open field. All right, and he sees their their potential. He says, "Hey, they're looking pretty good. They've, they've done this entirely on their own." Uh, sees the potential and organizes them into a team named Noko. The Japanese government then sees Noko's potential and says, "Hey, there's much more interest among Taiwanese as well uh, for baseball. We can take these guys to a higher stage." Enrolls the Aboriginal players of Noko into the Hualien Agricultural School so that they can play better teams and get a Japanese coach. Sort of your your uh, first instance on Taiwan of sort of taking uh, 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 sports players who probably don't have all that great of an educational background because of their economic background. I mean, they're Aborigines living in a a a, a fairly economically depressed part and isolated part of Taiwan. Um, So they haven't had many educational opportunities. However, they seem to be great at sports. So let's enroll them in psychology 101 and, uh, you know, uh, uh, use them for their uh, athletic ability to promote the school and go on the national stage and make money. All right. We've seen this phenomenon. We often see it in colleges today. Uh, Here it is in Taiwan. So from 1924 to 1925, NOCO toured the West Coast cities of Taiwan to play the more established Japanese teams. During this tour, they amassed an, they amassed an astonishing 4-3 and three record. They actually won more games against the Japanese teams who have been around for a lot longer and have better equipment and coaches and whatnot, um, with as many as 7,000 fans attending each game. That's huge for this time and place. Uh, it created a Taiwanese media sensation. The Japanese press uh, would uh, uh, talk about, uh, uh, play up the unique exotic aspects of an Aboriginal baseball team. And oftentimes they would do, they would portray the, uh, the, the NOCO team in the same way that the Americans in Chicago uh, portrayed the Japanese in pejorative Orientalist stereotypes. Um, because they were Aborigines, the Japanese press talked about the supposed savage qualities of NOCO and how it made them particularly suited uh, to be able to learn a, a game like baseball. Their star pitcher, a man by the name of Cha Wuma, Cha Wuma was uh, uh, through 221 pitches in a 16-inning game during this tour. That's a lot of pitches, by the way. Uh, baseball pitchers today rarely crack 100 pitches for six or seven innings. Um, and if you go over 100 pitches for nine innings, you've been said to you know, throw an exhausting, long, complete game. 221 pitches in 16 innings for one pitcher. Um, and they would talk about this shows off his macho aboriginal strength. Their childhood spent in the outdoors throwing rocks and running around in the open made them natural athletes. The Aborigines on the, on the NOCO team were said to have innate physical talent. They're viral and innocent. They refuse to succumb to injury like someone raised in the cities, a more coddled player, uh, might succumb to injuries. One headline in the Japanese press said, quote, the composed savage player headhunts the ball making fun of uh, the practice that was widely known at that time that Aborigines still engaged in the ritual practice of headhunting. Um, think about the analogy here, the Japanese discourse towards the Aboriginal team of NOCO. A good analogy might be um, a white nationalist discourse that you might have seen in many Western European and North American countries about this, you know, almost about the exact same time uh, towards a- uh, athletes from Africa or African-American athletes. One of the more famous instances that I recall, I don't know where I encountered this, I must have been reading about it at some point, uh, Hitler's comments on uh, athletes from uh, African-American athletes. I believe he was talking about 
about Jesse Owens um, or, uh, you know, just athletes from African countries participating in the Berlin Olympics in 1936. At one point, I'm not going to quote this verbatim, but he said something to the effect of, it's not fair. Uh, it's not fair. You have these sort of savage beast uh, type of athletes who, uh, uh, you know, have, have a different background, a different genetic makeup, and they excel in sort of these brute strength activities that don't require a whole lot of brain power. Uh, very pejorative discourse, but that was one way in which he would explain uh, being defeated by African-American athletes, uh, you know, German athletes losing to African-American athletes. You would invoke this pejorative uh, uh, savage discourse. And on Taiwan, we're seeing the same thing. In Taiwan, one of the ways that the NOCO team would be uh, talked about, however, is that an ab the development of an aboriginal baseball team proves the success of a Japanese civilizing mission, even more than if you formed a Chinese baseball team. Okay, because the Chinese are already, you know, semi-civilized, right? <laughs> or at least once they were very civilized, now they've kind of stagnated and they're semi-civilized. Um, but an aboriginal team from the mountains to uh, recognize their uh, talent, uh, refine that talent, develop that talent with the help of Japanese coaches, um, and then tour around the Japanese empire, we can show the success of the Japanese civilizing mission through baseball. Noko became so famous after this 1924-25 tour in Taiwan that in 1925, at the end of the tour, they were invited to go to Japan and play Japanese high school teams. That's how big they got. And when they went to Japan, they played nine games. They amassed a record of four, four wins, four losses, and one tie. Very respectable. And the highlight was them beating the Toyoshima Normal School by a score of 28 to nothing and playing Waseda High School. That's not the Waseda College. Well, it's not Waseda University, but hey, Waseda anything is pretty good. They uh, 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 drew Waseda High School to a 6-6 tie. Eventually, the novelty after this 1925 tour, eventually the novelty of NOCO would fade and they would be forgotten, sort of a footnote of history, uh, though one of their players did end up continuing to play in Japanese leagues in the Japanese home islands. The historical significance, however, uh, is that NOCO was the first non-Japanese team from Taiwan to tour not just Taiwan, okay, but to gain prominence beyond Taiwan. Uh, to even, you know, uh, it's not just that they're touring in Taiwan, and that's a significant development. They're also being invited to go to Japan and tour Japan. That's a big deal. Right. The next sort of celebrity team that makes a big splash, baseball team, uh, is a team known as Kano, K-A-N-O. And this is a mixed team, and it's going to come to prominence at the end of the 1920s. Uh, uh, NOCO, was for, uh, their prominence was sort of 1921 to 1925, peaks in 1924 to 25. Kano is 1928 to 1936 is when it's active and enjoying its greatest success. Okay, Kano is more of a quote-unquote normal mixed Taiwanese team. It had Japanese players, it had Taiwanese players, which is essentially, you know, the descendants of Han migrants from Fujian, and it had Aboriginal players, but not composed solely of one or the other. It gained prominence in 1928 when the team, the baseball team for the Jai Agricultural and Forestry Institute hired a Waseda graduate of the Waseda baseball team who was visiting Taiwan, hired him as their coach. All right, what you got here, again, you got your sort of informal uh, 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 
organizations of baseball teams. The Jai, that's a city in Taiwan. The Jai Agricultural and Forest Forestry Institute. Clearly, this is composed of you know probably a mix of government employees, some university students, and whatnot. Um, they decide uh, that they want to take go to, go to the next level. We think we're good enough. We need a Japanese coach. We're not going to find a good Taiwanese coach. We need a Japanese coach who has a background with Waseda. Um, and so the the name Kano is the Japanese pronunciation of the abbreviated Chinese name for the Jai Agricultural and Forestry Institute. In Chinese, Jianong, uh, Jianong in Japanese becomes Kano. All right, um, so they get a Japanese coach who has a legendary training regime. 300 swings, every single practice. If you're going to get on a boat and we're going to travel by boat to the next city or between the Japanese home islands, he was known for forcing his players to run laps on the boat with luggage in their hands to improve their strength. You know, you're not going to sit down and watch the waves. You're going to continue to do your training all the way uh, when, 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 when we travel to the next game as well. Uh, the origins of how Kano is going to attain its international celebrity will actually begin several years before the team is formed uh, in 1923. In 1923, you will get uh, Taiwanese officials who will lobby for Taiwanese baseball teams to be able to compete uh, in the famous tournament that takes place in Koshien Stadium in uh, Nishinomiya. Sorry, Nishinomiya. For a guy who has a stuttering problem, sometimes Japanese names can be a little bit difficult to get out of the to get out of the mouth. Nishinoyama, Japan, hosts this one of the most prominent high school baseball tournaments uh, in the Japanese world. Uh, it still does actually, and these uh, take place in a famous uh, stadium known as Koshien Statement. And the Taiwanese officials are saying uh, Hokkaido, Kwantung, and Korean teams can all send high school teams to compete. Uh, why can't Taiwan? And so they get permission. Sure, you guys have a legitimate team that you think can compete at the prestigious Koshien Stadium tournament? Uh, fine, uh, bring your teams along. Kano is going to be the team. Uh, Kano is going to be the team that actually ends up uh, making it to Koshien Stadium. Uh, most Kano teams lost in the first round at Koshien. But in 1931, Kano reached the finals. The finals! Where it lost four, four games to one to the Chukyo Business School. All right. Still to this day, see this tournament is continuous, it still goes on today. Still to this day, Kano is one of only two non-Japanese teams to play in the Koshien Finals. Think about this. Like I said, there's a century of history of annual tournaments at Koshien of these sort of you know sub-professional uh, 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 baseball teams competing there. Very prestigious tournament. Um, and Kano, uh, this mixed team from Taiwan, is one of only two teams that are not you know from the Japanese home islands that's ever made it to the final of this tournament. It created a media sensation in both Taiwan and Japan, and it symbolized the arrival of Taiwan as a modernized Japanese colony with acculturated, assimilated natives. Uh, Kano's star pitcher, a man by the name of Wu Mingjie, went on to play for Waseda. Okay, that's your best symbol of success, that one of your players from your amateur team in Taiwan uh, actually was so good that he was recruited to play for the Waseda baseball team. Uh, the Kano team, the legacy of the Kano team is something that has more prominence than NOCO. Um, and in the past decade or so, there have been several films, not English language films in you know North America, but films uh, made in Taiwan and circulated throughout Asia that sort of plays up uh, a, the story of a hard scrabble, multi-ethnic team working 
learning to work together, overcome our, dis- our, our differences to attain ultimately a moral victory over Japan in 1931. It'll be sort of, you know, the Japanese, the Aborigines, and the Chinese all need to sort of learn to work together. And ultimately, what the team accomplishes uh, is sort of shoving it back in Japan's face. Look at us. We're able to overcome, um, you know, your sense of superiority over us. And Taiwan is, uh, you know, strong and powerful and can, you know, we can do these things as well. Um, However, that's not how uh, the Kano team story would have played out uh, back when it was actually active. Originally, the Japanese press would have seen Kano's success as indicative of the success of Taiwan as a case study in Japan's imperial administration and improvement of the natives through the fostering of physical education through baseball. All right, now let's talk about what happens to baseball after the Japanese empire falls. Okay, though Japan loses all of its colonies and can only continue to foster baseball in the four home islands. All right, the United States will step in and either take over or serve as the chief political and economic sponsor of several Japanese colonies. And that is where baseball will continue to thrive in places where the Japanese legacy was not broken after 1945 because the United States maintained the Japanese legacy of fostering a local interest in baseball. Okay, Uh, where will the United States uh, continue the Japanese legacy of baseball outside of Japan? You don't need to continue to foster it in Japan. The Japanese can take care of that themselves. But what about the colonies that Japan lost? All right, the United States um, will either take over or be the chief political economic sponsor um, of Taiwan Eventually, after 1949, uh, after the Chinese Civil War, um, of South Korea, but not North Korea, not after the Korean War, all right? And then it will return and uh, pick up its own prior legacy in the Philippines, but not in Kwantung, not in northeastern China. The United States will not be sort of a colonial power there, um, and they'll be pretty much shut out after 1949. It'll be Soviets and Chinese. Uh, communists, Uh, not in North Korea, not after the Korean War and the division on the Korean Peninsula. That will also be basically the equivalent of mainland China once more or the Soviet orbit. Okay. And then obviously not in mainland occupied China, the heartland of China, where the Japanese never really fostered that interest in the first place. All right. Um, Now, brief recap for those of you who didn't listen to earlier episodes on the history of Taiwan. Uh, After 1945, Taiwan returns briefly for four years to mainland China. Um, And at this time, the people in power are Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. They've just endured eight years of war with the Japanese in the interior. They return to Nanjing on the eastern seaboard and send over their own governors to uh, 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 administer Taiwan. Uh, They pretty much exploit it mercilessly for four years. At the same time, they're engaged in a civil war with the Chinese communists who have taken over uh, uh, the northern half of China. In 1949, the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek lose the civil war and flee to Taiwan. Okay, They flee to Taiwan and they bring all of their mainland biases and agenda with them. They say, we're going to retake the mainland. Taiwan is not where we intend to stay forever. It's just a temporary base where we regroup, gain support, and uh, defeat the communists on the mainland. Uh, They brought with them a love of basketball, not a love of baseball. 
and basketball to this day is huge on mainland China. I don't know why that is. If I ever find a book or a dissertation where someone studied the origins of the long-standing mainland Chinese interest in basketball, I will read it eagerly. Uh, until then, we only know what happens with baseball. All right. Most of what the, the Chinese Nationalist Party will do on Taiwan is an effort to suppress all evidence of the previous Japanese uh, influence, uh, suppress Japanese language, uh, suppress Japanese education, um, you know, all these sorts of things. All right. The Japanese are pretty bad uh, from the perspective of the Nationalists. We, we just got done fighting them for so long. You might even say that they blamed them for losing the mainland. If it wasn't for the Japanese, we would have been able to extinguish the Chinese communists. All right. In 1950, however, June 1950, the Korean War breaks out. And initially, the United States wasn't very interested in protecting Chiang Kai-shek's party. They thought him corrupt and hopeless, and they said, if the Chinese communists decide to invade Taiwan, he's all yours, boys. We're not going to defend Taiwan. After the Korean War, when North Korea invades South Korea, Soviet-backed, Chinese communist-backed North Korea invades sort of the UN uh, uh, American-backed South Korea, um, and then you get the war uh, and the stalemate on the Korean Peninsula, that's when the United States says, hey, we need to protect Taiwan, we need to make sure that we have our own uh, uh, you know, non-communist version of China. And they support Taiwan, or you know, technically the Republic of China still, uh, taking the United Nations China seat and not letting the Chinese communists have the China seat, a fairly absurd state of affairs. All right, so you get this very fascinating situation in the 1950s after the Korean War in which Chiang Kai-shek wants to repudiate the Japanese legacy on Taiwan. All right, but he knows the only way that his government survives on Taiwan and is not immediately swallowed up and destroyed by the mainland Chinese communists is if he has American support. The Americans love baseball, <laughs> All right, and the Americans occupy Japan now, and they've sort of taken over the former Japanese empire. Um, so you need American support. There are Amer American military bases on Taiwan, and you want to have good relations with the Americans because American support is not guaranteed. They might withdraw their support at any time, and the moment the Americans decide not to send in uh, an aircraft carrier to the Taiwan Strait, that's a signal to Mao Zedong that he can rush in and invade Taiwan, and sooner or later they'll win. So... In the 1950s, despite the fact that Chiang Kai-shek blamed Japan, rightly so, for losing the mainland, and it was his longtime mortal enemy, uh, he finds that baseball becomes a very convenient form of positive cultural interaction between U.S. military personnel stationed in Taiwan and the larger Taiwanese population who grew up, who fostered this interest in baseball through the Japanese who are now gone. Anything that brings the Americans closer to the Taiwanese was encouraged. All right, this went again. This went against, of course, the Nationalist Party's natural inclinations to embrace things like ping pong and basketball, which were far more popular on the mainland from whence they came. But in order to cater to uh, uh, cultural interactions with the Americans who are making sure your state survives, they allow baseball to continue to thrive in Taiwan as a means of solidifying this relationship with the United States. Okay, this is unique. 
because many other evidences of the Japanese past were erased immediately by the Nationalist Party. Um, and they also tried to erase uh, evidence of Taiwanese identity and language as well. They said, no, 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 there's no Taiwanese race. There's no Taiwanese language. These are things that we don't encourage you to speak. Uh, you need to learn Mandarin Chinese. That's the language of the mainland, the official language of the Chinese state that we represent. We have the official China seat. Uh, we still represent China. Uh, Taiwanese identity, Taiwanese language, that can't be the basis of the Republic of China on Taiwan. You're just a, Ch a Taiwan province, part of a larger ch Chinese state that we intend to reconquer. Uh, so in most aspects of daily life, uh, if you were caught speaking Taiwanese in a government office or something, you, 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 you could be reprimanded. All right, That was something that was actively suppressed. Japanese loan words were usually kicked out of the Chinese language. No more Japanese loan words. Um, but in baseball, these things could still be used. Taiwanese language could be used on the baseball field. Japanese loan words where, you know, if you're talking about baseball, all your terms for baseball come from the Japanese language because they introduced it. All right, you're going to be filled with Japanese loan words. These could still be used on the baseball field uh, when they could not be used off the baseball field. So what kind of games took place? Most games were organized by the U.S. Military Assistance Advisory Group, Taiwan, MAG, M-A-A-G is the acronym. And the games were billed as, quote, a celebration of Chinese and American cooperation. Remember, it's not Taiwan, not Taiwanese, it's Chinese. At one game in 1953, the U.S. General William C. Chase was invited to throw out the first pitch in a game that Taiwan won 3-2. Uh, the Taiwan teams, officially the Republic of China teams, would then, uh, throughout the 1950s and 60s, they would travel all around U.S.-dominated Asia to play games, places where the U.S. had military bases and uh, were, were on friendly relations with other countries. Uh, so the Republic of China teams would travel uh, to military bases in the Philippines, in Thailand, South Korea, uh, uh, Japan, um, and, you know, this is keeping alive uh, not just a general amateur interest in baseball, but institutional legacy of baseball. Coaches, training programs, uh, the aspiration among uh, uh, elementary and, and middle school and high school students that this is something that you might be able to do at a very high professional level one day. The odds are against it, but it's possible here. And here's you know how we can do it on the side. It's a virtue in and of itself to be engaged in physical education. Okay. Um, this permissive Nationalist Party baseball policy, okay, uh, to continue to let baseball thrive on Taiwan. Uh, this occurred at the same time that the Nationalist Party was trying its best to whitewash the Japanese origins of baseball. Uh, they knew that baseball was introduced by the Japanese, but they didn't want to remind anyone of that fact. And so when Waseda University began sending its teams to tour Taiwan in the 1950s and the 1960s, they were presented by the official uh, uh, na uh, nationalist press uh, as a novelty. Ooh, look at this. We have teams coming from Japan to tour Taiwan. Isn't this special? Isn't this unprecedented? No, it wasn't unprecedented at all. <laughs> uh, Japanese baseball teams had been touring uh, Taiwan for decades, uh, back to the early part of the 20th century, and Waseda too. This is by no means the first time that they had come. Uh, but you don't want to play up this Japanese history on Taiwan. So the Americans ended up being very flattered to be convinced that the presence and love for baseball on Taiwan was a direct result of their love for the Americans. When in fact, 
Taiwanese interest in baseball came from a love of Japanese baseball that was then simply inherited uh, by the U.S. after 1950 um, and the Korean War. Now, the last sort of major interesting development in which we see the politicization of baseball, politicization of sports, comes in the 1960s and the 1970s. All right, when it becomes clear with Nixon's visit to China um, that the United States is going to shift their recognition of uh, China from uh, the Republic of China on Taiwan to the real China on the mainland, which, you know, makes sense, obviously. Um, and this shift occurs in the early 1970s. Okay, um, how is baseball going to play into the Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party, essentially losing its status as the representative of China on the global stage? That's a big blow. Well, they have to come up with a new identity to justify their separate existence from mainland China. Okay, um, one thing this will eventually translate into by the late 70s and the, and the 1980s is democracy. Right? The political aspect of Taiwan's new identity is going to be democracy. Uh, we are free China uh, in, in, in both name and substance. Um, and we're going to allow open elections, you know, this sort of thing, to show that China one day can do this as well. We're going to be a model for how communist authoritarian China might be able to evolve one day. That'll be a justification down the road that starts to take root in the 1970s and flower in the 1980s and 1990s in the realm of sports. We're going to see uh, Nationalist Party support for Taiwan baseball. It's going to reach global heights in the 1960s and 70s um, with the support of Taiwanese Little League teams. Remember, we don't want to focus too much on sort of major league professional because uh, in the United States, uh, major league baseball you know, dominates all of our attention because we have the best baseball players in the world. I mean, so it makes sense. Uh, in many other parts of the, of, of the baseball world outside the United States, uh, high school and college baseball are actually just as popular as professional baseball. Um, and this is certainly the case on Taiwan in the uh, 1960s and 1970s. At the same time, the Republic of China on Taiwan is losing its UN China seat. Uh, they will look to other ways to raise the profile of Taiwan, maintain the profile of Taiwan uh, throughout the world to sort of compensate, to try and compensate for the loss of political prestige. So get this, get this statistic. This is going to blow your mind if you aren't already familiar with it. From will win the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, 17 times in 27 years. Yeah, you heard those numbers right. 27 years, 17 victories. Little Taiwan! It's insane. They are still the record holder of Little League World Series titles, even though the team from Taiwan hasn't won a World Series in 30 years. It dries up after the mid-1990s, um, and now it's been a long time since any Little League team from Taiwan has won the World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, uh, but despite that dry spell, no team has still come close to passing 17 Little League World Series victories. All right, here's a great symbolism. In 1971, as U.S. President Richard Nixon is preparing to visit China and, you know, set in motion the wheels of a policy that will revoke recognition of the Republic of China on Taiwan as the China seat in the United Nations, the, uh, uh, a, a team from Tainan, the southern city of Tainan in Taiwan, the Tainan Giants win the Little League World Series. All right, wonderful juxtaposition of, of events there. So as the Republic of China on Taiwan is losing its global identity as China, it moves to preserve a global name brand recognition of 
Taiwan through its little league teams and official state support and investment of resources in making sure we have the best little league uh, infrastructure uh, anywhere in the world. Okay, and then our final little uh, sort of uh, uh, follow-up to all of this to conclude is the 1990s when you finally had your big your 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 big time breakout of former Japanese imperial players. Uh, or I phrased that very poorly, uh, countries from the former Japanese empire who have players who become a result of the long-standing legacy of Japanese baseball followed up by post-war American baseball, uh, they finally start to break into the major leagues. Remember, you have to have a long tradition of institutional support for organized sports before you're going to be able to contribute players to the most competitive level of that sport anywhere in the world. That's why China doesn't have any players in Major League Baseball. You think the by far the most populous country out of 1.5 billion people, surely there must be someone who's just so insanely talented who could you know compete in the Major Leagues. Yeah, probably. But you have to have the scouts and the coaches who identify that talent, who foster that talent from a young age, put them on teams. Uh, you have to have the institutions in place. And only the Japanese Empire and the United States provided those institutions and support for baseball in the first half of the 20th century. And that support bore fruit, finally, or was at least uh, in the public eye of North Americans for the first time in the 1990s, when you had Japanese, Taiwanese, South Korean, and Filipino players who started to break into Major League Baseball. Remember those statistics. 58 players total from Japan. Um, uh, all 30 Major League Baseball teams have had at least one Japanese player on their team. Uh, 21 players from South Korea, 15 from Taiwan, probably about 10 from the Philippines. You know, total, over time. A uh, vast majority of these numbers uh, began in the 1990s and into the 2000s and, and up to, to today. And these numbers perfectly reflect both the date and the directness of the spread of American baseball uh, in Asia. First to Japan. It spread to Japan first. Japan has the longest history going back to the 19th century. So it makes sense that Japan has the most number of players who have made it into the Major League uh, uh, Baseball of North America. All right, 58. And then from Japan elsewhere, it spreads to Taiwan and Korea um, and its other imperial areas, which will not be followed up by the United States, so they'll lose the legacy there. So it makes sense that South Korea, South Korea and Taiwan would have you know, less players in the major leagues than Japan. Japan has had 58 total, Taiwan uh, 15 total, South Korea 21. So you know, less than half, maybe a third, or even sometimes you know, almost a fourth in the case of Taiwan. Okay, uh, you can see these numbers actually proportionally that makes sense if you look at the history of when these uh, uh, sports went to these places. You, you know, Japan would be first, and then its longest-held colonies of Korea and Taiwan. All right, uh, and back in the 1990s and the 2000s. The way it happened was that uh, first it was pitchers. Uh, it, it, it wasn't full-time position players. It wasn't third basemen or center fielders and whatnot who played every single day. It was pitchers uh, who were the first sort of exports, the first Japanese players to make it big in uh, Major League Baseball in the United States and Canada. Um, and then eventually it was position players. That was the next sort of big breakthrough. I remember this quite vividly growing up. I grew up mostly in Seattle. Um, and I remember it was huge when we got uh, Ichiro Suzuki in 2001. We had this incredible season, Seattle Mariners 
49ers in 2001, won more games than ever been won in history, 116 games. We won 116 games that year. Still a record that has not been broken. And we ended up losing to the friggin' Yankees in the playoffs, and we did not win. go to the World Series. We're still the only team that's ever been to the World Series. Thank God the Nats won the World Series, and I finally transferred my loyalty to the Washington team because Seattle's a lost cause. Anyways, back in 2001, we uh, Ichiro Suzuki, uh, widely acknowledged, you know, the, the, the phenom of Japanese baseball. He was the first position player. Uh, to play every single day um, in the major leagues. And he was a huge sensation. Um, but he sort of opened the door for other position players to follow in his footsteps. Um, and now it's quite common. It's quite common to see pitchers uh, who come, uh, pitchers and position players, not just pitchers, okay, uh, who come from Taiwan and Korea. And maybe you've thought about it before when you hear these names and you thought, oh, that's interesting. Or maybe it didn't really phase you at all. It's become normalized. That's probably pretty cool too if it's become normalized to the point where you don't even really think that it's odd for someone to have a Korean name on the back of their jersey as they're, you know, at bat or pitching or whatnot. Uh, the latest uh, sort of phenom in the past uh, recent memory was uh, uh, Chen Ming Wang, uh, who played for the Yankees. He was from Taiwan uh, and he was huge in Taiwan. Wow, we have a pitcher who's playing for not just any baseball team in America, but the damn Yankees. Are you kidding me? Uh, by the time, I think it was 05, 2005, 2006, that Chen Ming Wang, uh, in Chinese, Wang Jianming, uh, when he uh, ended up playing for the Yankees, and he was a huge star. He, he, he flourished. He won like 20 games in his first two seasons or whatnot. Uh, I was out of the baseball orbit by then. I was no longer paying attention to baseball because the Mariners sucked, um, and I hadn't moved to D.C. and experienced the Nats in 2019. Uh, so I was totally out of the Loop. But I remember my wife, who also is not into baseball or sports really in general either, uh, she's from Taiwan, she was plugged into the Taiwanese media at that time period. And I remember hearing these random things about this Taiwanese pitcher for the Yankees who's incredible. And she says, wow, everyone talks about it. My parents are telling me about uh, uh, Wang Jianming and everything. He's playing for the Yankees. And they were so proud, even if you didn't give a shit about sports or baseball in Taiwan, uh, knowing that one of your players was playing for the Yankees was huge. Okay. Uh, anyways, the bird's eye takeaway point of all of this, sports is much more than just idle entertainment. It is idle entertainment. Uh, but especially at the international level, we politicize it and we, we, we infuse larger historical, political, cultural meaning into it. We do this at the domestic level too sometimes. Say, oh, you know, that Philadelphia team represents the spirit of Philadelphia and this team represents sort of, you know, the character of Los Angeles. And when they play each other, it's like the people of Los Angeles symbolically taking on the people of Philadelphia who has better food, cheesecakes versus burritos, you know, it's crap like that. And there's a huge amount of artificiality you know, put into those statements based on a tiny kernel of truth. Um, but it's fun usually. It doesn't really get into the realm of sort of, you know, a lot of tensions, although it can. If fans have too much beer and whatnot, it can get ugly. Uh, so we do that a little bit on the domestic level. We know that there's a large degree of artificiality in those uh, 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 competitions. At least I hope we know that. <laughs> um, however, on the international level, sometimes it gets a little less more playful. But regardless, uh, we do the same thing. We, 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 we read international sports, you know, Olympics and whatnot, into this country against this country. What's so much more interesting, though, is to think about uh, how sports and who is good at what sports and who can compete at the international level, at the best levels in the world, in any respect of sport. Uh, you have to understand the history of that sport, the development, the spread of that sport in a political context. Sports just don't grow out of the ground. Well, they do. We create sports spontaneously. Uh, but to be really, 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 really good at them, to compete at the highest level on the globe, you need 
institutions. You need massive support. Um, and you need a little bit of serendipity. Okay, if it was the United States didn't take over, didn't have this relationship with Taiwan, uh, baseball would have died in Taiwan. I guarantee it. It would have been like the mainland. It would have been basketball. Uh, there would have been loved basketball and baseball would have been marginalized. Uh, if you didn't have the Korean War, okay, if you didn't have the Korean War, you wouldn't have baseball only popular in South Korea and only South Korea producing players for Major League Baseball, but nothing from North Korea. If the Japanese Empire didn't lose the war, you would have all of Korea in the baseball orbit. All right. Uh, if, you, if you didn't have the Korean War, then you would have no. Ba uh, if there was no uh, Korean War, but Japan did lose World War II, and maybe all of Korea went a different direction and wasn't under the control either of communist world or the American world or the Japanese, baseball might have died out in Korea completely. I mean, it's fascinating to look at how sports can be a mirror, a, a, a lens through which to see um, how these big imperial entities, these empires evolve over time. Uh, so I hope that you found this episode to be sort of uh, a, ref a refreshing lens to uh, examine the development, the fall, and the legacy of the Japanese empire all through baseball. Who'd have thunk it? All right, well, like I said, hope you enjoyed this lighthearted interlude because it's back to war, misery, and widespread suffering as far as the eye can see next time. First up, the comfort women in episode 55 of Beyond Huaxia. 